Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined, as I am every Friday, by my dear friend, its senior reporter on the fintech beat, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hi. Hi, Alex. How are you? I am slightly... Like I would say underwater, but also like run over. So I'm kind of like run over underwater is how I feel right now. It's been well, a busy week. You were leading our YC Demo Day editorial coverage, and that's no easy task. And juggling various other things. So it has been a few days. But the good news is, Marianne, we are not here as a pair. We have brought along our dear friend. It's Kirsten Korosek. Kirsten, welcome back to the pod. Thank God you're here. <laughs> yes. We're so happy you're here. Yes, I'm glad to be back too. I'm fresh off of another vacation, like I, two in a summer. It's, I don't even know. I've, I've turned over a new leaf. I'm no longer a workaholic and I go on two vacations this summer now. Good for you. I mean, teach us your ways. One and two, I didn't know you were European. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I am trying to take a page from our European colleagues and actually take vacation. Yeah, really, that was a self-hating American comment about how poor our work culture is versus a diss of our European friends. But I, I will say, we can all work a little bit less and things would be okay. But not right now, because we have a packed show for you. And on the pod today, we have deals of the week, including Mentra, Simple Closure, and Stack AV. Then we are going to talk about YC's Demo Day. It's been two days of startups. We have seen hundreds of them. We have a couple of favorites to call out to bring to your attention. And then we're going to close up with the EU cracking down on, quote, gatekeepers in tech and what that means for not only major American tech companies that compete abroad, but also for startups that want to build something that really does straddle the globe. First up though, Marianne, I hear Disrupt is right around the corner. What's going on there? Oh my gosh. I cannot believe how close it is, Alex. Like, I mean, we are less than two weeks away from when we'll all three be sitting together on stage recording equity. Yep. I bought a jacket. I bought some pants. I bought some hot new shoes. A jacket? I'm trying to, I don't think I've ever seen you in a jacket. Except for last year at Disrupt. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, a, I have an important audience question. Should I wear my bright sparkle sequin jacket just for the live show? Yes. Oh, I'm, I like that idea. I'm trying to think of a counter argument <laughs> as to why you shouldn't. But I mean, like, should I have fun while doing the podcast? The answer is yes. I I, I might buy a silly hat just for the show. If you're going to wear a sparkly jacket, why not? I will. I will pack it. It's going to go in the suitcase. Okay. What color is it, though? So I don't like clash with you. It's like silver. <laughs> okay, cool. That's pretty neutral. It's full silver. Ooh, Marianne, can you bring cowboy hats for us? Just because I live in Texas doesn't mean I own cowboy hats. You know, Marianne, stereotypes save time is what Alex is trying to tell you right now. Wow. This is what I get for reaching a hand down to the Southern states and their different culture and trying to bring it into the uh, the West Coast vibe. And you know what I get? I get called a meanie pants. I'm not into it. All right. We'll be at Disrupt. You should come. Use the code equity if you don't have a ticket yet. It's going to be a blast. We're all in like hardcore conference prep mode. So if we're a little stressed out, it's because we are. Anyways, it's going to be great. But back to the podcast. Marianne, you have a story on the site this week about a company called Mintra that I absolutely freaking love. Tell us about it. I was really excited to cover Mentra. It's obviously not fintech, but when one of the co-founders emailed me and told me about the premise behind the company, I was intrigued. I hadn't heard about anything like it. And so what Mentra does, it, it aims to match neurodivergent job seekers with jobs that they would be really well suited for. And their premise is not only would they be well suited for these jobs, they may even be better at them or outperform 
other people doing those certain jobs. So I love that. I feel like this is a population that I don't want to say is ignored, but not... (laughs) Well, not given enough attention to, especially in the workplace. So, so what Mentor's trying to do, it's an, it's an AI-powered neuro-inclusive employment network. They're trying to match large enterprises with uh, employees that have cognitive differences, such as autism, ADHD, dyslexia, OCD. And I love it. I love that they, are, they really look at all these factors around a person's neurotype, aptitude, environmental sensitivities. All three founders are artistic. One of them, the CEO, has a brother who's a non-speaking autistic individual. And it was, it was in trying to help him communicate that kind of sparked this idea in her mind that we needed something like this. So I have a question. How does it work? How do they find these people and how do they get these folks to not just any job, but the job that's built for them? That's a really great, a really great question. Um, so I I honestly am not even sure. They've got 33,000 people. They said mostly word of mouth so far. So I'm not sure if they're using any other marketing channels. I They didn't talk about that, but they are working with, I think they said 17 employers so far. And what I, oh, I can't believe I forgot this. Sorry. They were backed very early on by Sam Altman, who's OpenAI's co-founder and CEO with, I think, a million dollar seed round. And he backed them again this year. That was a pre-seed round. He backed them again in a seed round. So anyway, they've got 33,000 job seekers on their site today, which is incredible. You know what's really amazing about Sam Altman? I just realized this, and this is a little bit off topic, but roll with me. I, it's funny how if you do something that's bigger than the thing you did before, what you did before gets kind of pushed aside. Like I met Sam Altman at Demo Day IRL in the Bay Area a thousand years ago when he was like running YC. And now when you talk about Sam Altman, it that that his time at Loop, like all that is now like like historical detritus. It's open AI is the thing he's doing. It's impressive right. to have a third act that is so big. It towers over what you did before. Exactly. I, I think so too. But I was intrigued that he he's backed this company, not just once, but twice. Well, and the interesting thing, this is again, a slight sidebar, but it kind of makes sense that he's interested in employment because he also is really interested in the concept of universal basic income, which is like, when AI takes over all of our jobs, like what happens? So he he clearly has this interest in the future of work and, and how people will work. And while these seem divergent, maybe there's maybe there's some overlapping there. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. The way that I was thinking about this actually was um, uh, lessons from being a stroller person. So I take our daughter on a lot of walks. And one thing that I have realized is how inaccessible many buildings, locations, and areas are even in Providence, Rhode Island on college campuses, which are some of the most accessible places. And it's really got me thinking about what is accessible in our economy and our, our job market, especially. So to me, this company is really trying to like not only help you know, make things more fair, but also get people access to stuff they're going to be like just really good at. And so the idea is just so... It's rare that I talk about a startup that like warms my heart, but here we are like, this is like a human good. I like that. Yeah. And to that point, another investor, Shine Capital, which led the C round, Mo Koifman, I think how do you pronounce his name? He was saying exactly this. He was like, it's so, so rare to come across a company that's doing something economically positive and productive for society at the same time. It's like super rare. And 
he also raised another good point in, in terms of talking about like specific things. But I thought this was interesting. For example, there are folks with Asperger's or some form of autism that tend to be way better at like data labeling tasks. So anyway, overall, I, I my heart was in this story. It, it was something that I, I had to cover. I couldn't say no. And and also to his point, it's it's making money. I mean, the company started out profitable, they said, and that was with a traditional per higher pricing model. But they decided that might limit them and um, being able to scale. So they transitioned to a more scalable SaaS model where employers can subscribe to access you know, the talent pool and the recruiting products. So I think that's great. These are sharp uh, young people who've started this company, very enthusiastic. I love it. Can't wait to see where they go. Yep. And with three and a half million more dollars, certainly off to a good start. But if things don't go well for Mitra, <laughs> it's good news on the horizon because Simple Closure would be there to help them close down simply. My deal of the week is the Grim Reaper of Startup Land. It's a company called Simple Closure, just raised $1.5 million in, amazingly enough, less than 24 hours. And their goal is to help companies shut down. It's actually not a small problem because you have suppliers, you have vendors, you have bills, you have IP, you have employees, you have furniture. In the old days, you used to have like servers and stuff that you might have to clean before you can sell. Um, But, you know, we talk a lot about how startups usually don't work out on average. And so this type of thing makes a lot of sense to me. Kirsten, I got to say, it's a very clear and cool idea, but it almost seems like it's designed for a period in time in which we're expecting a lot of startups to close, which is a little bit sad. Well, Actually, we've gone through a lot of consolidation the last few years. So (laughs) uh, I felt like this would have come in handy for many startups in the sector I cover, like autonomous vehicles Mm -hmm. and maybe prop tech. (laughs) That's another area. But what was really fascinating to me is that this little fact that it's a little sad fact, actually, 93% of startups that raise will shut down. Wow, right. That's... A huge number. Yeah. So to me, that shows that there is quite a business case for symbol closure. But the question is, if symbol closure doesn't make it, and I'm not saying that they won't, but who will who will help them shut down, Alex? <laughs> who watches the watchers and who shuts down the shutdowners? Good question, Kirsten. I, I This was another company that caught my attention just because the model was a little more unique than what I'm used to seeing, I was surprised. I was like, you mean this doesn't already exist? I mean, maybe it does. And I I just haven't heard about it outside of like the legacy providers, but they're claiming that that what they can do is help companies shut down. I think it was weeks instead of like a year and at a fraction of the cost. Okay. I, I don't know for sure if that's true or accurate, although they, they had a customer quote, but I did think it was interesting how they raised the money. So the co-founder said that he was at FinTech meetup and was just kind of presented something about the company where there were investors in the crowd, no pitch deck or anything. And then within 24 hours, they had raised $1.5 million, which I thought, okay, hmm, that's interesting. Well, that's what scared me about this. The fact they raised money so fast mm-hmm. for a, it, it's cool that a company raised money. Good for them. Happy for them. But when you're digesting failure right, and people right. want to fund you to help you do that, it, it makes me worry. It's not a great worry. sign. Yeah, it's not right. a great sign. I mean, it, obviously, if a lot of investors are clamoring to invest, then they must think that we're going to be seeing a lot more companies shutting down. Well, and maybe it's not that they're going to see more. But clearly there is, you mentioned earlier, like sort of the legacy providers that probably have very expensive services and maybe aren't 
really geared towards startups and more for the large corporations mm-hmm. winding down. And so maybe there is a lucrative niche here for specifically handling s- startups. You know, there are whole banks uh, Silicon Valley Bank being one of them that <laughs> caters to startups. Uh, no jokes, Alex. Sorry, no jokes. So maybe this is investors are seeing that this is just an area that isn't provided. And I would love to see the, fi- the, the financial metrics around here. But what caught my attention was that it's at a fraction of the cost. You know, what what is the actual number? But if they can do it cheaper, that's really valuable to a startup that probably doesn't have a lot of money anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you guys seen those ETFs that are like inverse NASDAQ that kind of go do the opposite of what a thing is doing and you can buy them as a way to like short or go long kind of in a contrary way? Well, that's what this is to me. This is like an inverse startup bet because simple closure should do best when things are worst for startups and it should do the worst when things are the best for startups because if things are good, startups aren't shutting down, it has less business, but given where we are in the economic cycle and where venture capital is, it's kind of a cool way to bet on the downturn. I'll say one last thing. I know we need to move on, but here's my thought too, is that when things are good though, there's a lot more startups usually out there, right? Anyway, so the you see like ratio wise, we're probably still going to have a lot of shutdowns either way, just because, you know, even when things are good, there's more startups. There's more startups that could fail. Does that make sense? Well, yes, Absolutely. that makes great sense. And it completely undercuts my, my relatively, <laughs> I thought, neat point about inverse ETF. So I'm just so much for that. Well, not only that, Alex, I was going to make the exact same point. So two out of the three people on this podcast smartly came to that conclusion. And then we're incorrect after Marianne brought a, a bat to the pinata we had of an idea. Anyways, earlier we were talking about making money while doing good. And I can't think of a better example than self-driving cars. So Kirsten, <laughs> what's going on? <laughs> I know Marianne has comments about that. So a little bit of a, su- it's not a surprise, but it's really an interesting story and kind of a stunning turnaround. So I don't know if you remember this, but about 11 months ago, I actually had the scoop on this. Argo mm-hmm. AI, sort of a darling of the AV industry, considered one of the leaders, had you know burst on the scene in 2017 with a billion dollars of backing from Ford. Then VW came along, and it was like seemed like this company that couldn't fail because not only were they making progress and well respected, but they had two huge OEMs backing them. They had avoided you know the constant raising of rounds. And then suddenly they shut down because VW and Ford pulled their backing. That was last October. And and that startup was Argo AI. Well, today um, or this week, the founders of Argo AI, we had heard uh, that they were working on a new startup, but didn't really know who the backers were. And the news came out that SoftBank Group Mm. is the sole investor in these three co-founders' new startup called Stack AV, focused on self-driving trucks. So still autonomous vehicles, but now applying it to Class 8 semi-trucks based in Pittsburgh. And Bloomberg had this piece, which was that the investment was upwards of $1 billion. Yeah. It's a lot of money. So a couple important points or one other important point. This is not SoftBank Vision Fund, which has previously invested in a number of autonomous vehicle uh, companies, some which are still around. But this is SoftBank Group. So a little bit of an interesting difference there. I have so many thoughts, but I want to I want to let Marianne tell us why this is going to kill us. 
Well, I, I feel bad because I feel like I'm a broken record, you know, with my distaste for self-driving vehicles. I think I'll set that aside for a moment and just try to speak a little more objectively. I, I feel like we've been talking a lot about self-driving truck companies shutting down, right? So like, this just feels weird. Like, how could a company entering a space where we're seeing all these closures, and I think consolidation too, raise like a billion dollars or more? I'm just confused, Kirsten, help enlighten me. Why, why do you think this happened? I interviewed the CEO and co-founder Brian Seleski and asked him that exact same question. I, I was curious why he was really striking a very confident and bullish tone, not only because here he had, you know, had a failure less than a year ago. Not only had he rebounded, but he had raised a billion dollars and was feeling very confident. And, and he really homed in on two points. One, that they come with a lot of experience and that the, the self-driving truck companies that have survived, Kodiak Robotics and Aurora being the two main ones, also have a lot of experience. And he sort of used those as examples of Listen, it's not because this this isn't a good business model, but it because these are the companies that um have risen to the top. And, you know, of course he put he put stack AV into that. And then also the business model, which is there's a clear use case here for trucking, there's job shortage and 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 all of the sort of facts that other AV trucking companies have put out there, that there's a real need for this and that the economics are clear. So those were his two reasons. And he really struck a very confident tone when I interviewed him earlier today. Yeah. I got to say, I'm really with Marianne on this one. It surprised me because I've tracked Too Simple, which is spelled T-U Simple, which does self-driving trucks for a long time. Kirsten, you and I are both stock market dweebs. So we know what's happened to this company. Shares traded above 60 bucks a share back in 21. And today it's worth about a buck 35 a share. So like and the whole company is worth $310 million now, which is, you'll note, less than a third of the venture capital round that Stack AV just raised. That said, if anyone's going to drop a billion dollars on this, it's SoftBank. And I love them for it. <laughs> SoftBank just rolls in. It's like, hey, it didn't work out the last couple of times. Let's go. Here's a check. Here's a billion dollars. Go figure it out. Call us when you got it to work. You're right. I just, I love that. They're very positive. They've made a lot of bets, right? Yeah, a lot of big bets. Some have not fared well. Others, others have done great. They, like I thought, have. DoorDash was a complete dog. Turns out, haha, proves what I know. They made a pile of money off of that, you know. And they're taking Arm Public. That's that was also a great bet. All right, you know, cool. Yeah. And, and frankly, Marianne, even though I know you're worried about self-driving cars in general, trucks on the highway mostly drive straight. Like you know, like it's not the most complicated driving and it's also boring and you know like to me it's a great they fall asleep at the wheel right they fall asleep at the wheel because they're there's such long hours that they're in these trucks and right. computers can't right. fall asleep they can only run out of power or internet connection so nothing can go wrong <laughs> so it's going to I be just fine. made a statement that was pro self-driving yeah there I you can't go believe it. we have to write this Bookmark down that yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one one note though about the SoftBank Vision Fund investing. I wanted to list some of the companies that SoftBank Vision Fund has invested in the past. Aurora, also self-driving trucks, now publicly traded via SPAC. Cruise, DD Autonomous, Neuro and Robotic Research. And the interesting thing about Cruise is that GM, which now, you know, owns Cruise, they bought SoftBank Vision Fund's stake in cruise for $2.1 billion last year. So they, so SoftBank's out of that now. So there is the one conflict to me is 
Aurora, which is also self-driving trucks, but the others are really more either robo-taxi or delivery-based, not direct competition. Yeah. And the thing that I want to throw in here, just because I've been thinking a lot about it, there we go. Finally got Aurora's stock price pulled up, worth $5 billion. So not everyone is too simple in this space. Some people are doing quite well. Self-driving cars, we talked about them expanding in San Francisco, and we're hearing rumblings about other geographies. To me, like slowest moving revolution of all time, but it it does (laughs) seem to still be trucking along and that's pretty exciting so, oh my god that was terrible if i can't make them groan my jokes are too good so that's just right my joke all right we are talking about why combinators demo days one and two including our favorites but first a short break i love demo day I just do. Demo days of all sorts, shapes, sizes, student demo days, big demo days, regional demo days, thematic demo days. Kirsten, I love YCU demo day because it's all of those in one. It's an enormous cavalcade of startups. I mean, what more can you ask for? Is it your favorite of all demo days? I love all my children the same. (laughs) And by that, I mean, probably. (laughs) I mean, mean, who else else rolls out a two-day you know, six hour demo day a thon and hits you with like 220 companies. Like you go to a Techstars demo day. It's like, this is the Techstars Chicago music accelerator. And it's like huh? nine companies and they're all like <laughs> doing music in Chicago. YC is like, you know. Well, it was big, right? There was what, 218 startups, not as big as winter 2023 batch, right? So that was what was that? About 270 is so there was fewer. Why is that the case? And that's a pretty significant difference, I think, right? 52. It's actually companies. come down more historically, Marianne. I think the numbers yeah. were in the 300s before. I, I think it just got too big. I think, mm-hmm. I think, you know, what YC was not ever lacking was people who wanted to participate in its program. They love to talk about how their acceptance rates like, you know, 1% or 0.1% or, you know, whatever it is. It's harder than Harvard is what people like to tell me. So All they right. just let some more folks in for a while. And that seemed to be kind of, I, I would say, in keeping with the times at the time, back in the 2021 era. Um, but they've, they've brought it back in. They've made it a little bit more, I guess, exclusive. And as a result, I do think, and this is just my impression after watching both days, that the average quality of company that we saw was higher. So unsurprising there, but it's still several hundred companies twice a year. So it's not exactly, you know, a a pretty small group. Um, Have you guys ever been to a a, a in-person YC demo day? No, never have. Okay. I almost missed them because they were like very, very low budget affairs. And so there was kind of this like this charm to having like all these rich people sitting on chairs looking uncomfortable while nerds kind of paraded in front of them. They've done a really good job bringing that to the digital realm, but I, I, I'm looking forward to going back in person um, sometime soon. But yeah, we're done. We've done the, uh, this was the summer 23 batch. So we are done with YC for the year. And I was hoping if I could bore you guys with some of my favorites. Oh no, I'd love to hear more about them. Well, I know Marianne loves neobanks and that of all the fintech subgenres, <laughs> nothing makes her happier than neobank. And that brings me to Envelope, which wants to bring automation and auto budgeting tools to neobanks for consumers. And one thing that I love is fintech applications that make the average person more of a super user and can help them save money and have a better financial footing. So Envelope is kind of cool. And given its focus on budgeting, it reminded me of the Envelope method for budgeting, which if you don't know about, it means you probably have enough money. But I love that because I was like, where did they get that name from? So I I, I wrote it in my blurb that it is where they got the name. And then we published the story and I was like, I really should have asked them if that's the case because it seems so (laughs) obvious to me. Right, right. Yeah. So you're making it up is what you're saying. Well, (laughs) 
if you name your car company Charger and you're not named after the Dodge, you know, I think you're just misdirecting people. Marianne, am I wrong? <laughs> like, um, yeah, I can see what you're talking about. It makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, I mean, who knows? There could have been some other story there, but they didn't correct you, right? So maybe, obviously, I think you were on the right track. I've been on calls the entire time since that story has gone out. So maybe they have. <laughs> That's right. I, I forgot you don't check your email. <laughs> I, I don't. Email is a, is a curse on humanity. Anyways, if I got that wrong, I will buy you a coffee the next time I see you. All right. Next up on my favorites list was Dilly. Are you guys familiar with the phrase do Dilly? Slang for due diligence? Oh, um, I've never heard that before. No one I have ever talked to has ever said I got to do a little do Dilly on that startup. Oh, my goodness. But, which is why I said in my story, <laughs> if you say that, it's a good way to look silly while trying to appear cool. Dilly helps people do diligence on potential deals using AI to kind of help you kind of look at things and compare deals and so forth. Or as I like to call it, the anti-full employment for junior iBankers <laughs> application. Um, I just love that this is what they picked to apply technology to. And I love when people are bringing a technology thing to a product. I presume they would have wanted to have had in their past, you know? So That's that was fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot of companies that were favorites. I'll just call it a couple of these. Um, we liked Silimate, which was a way to automate chip design workflows. We talked a lot about chips in the US and around the world. So lovely to see people working on the software side of hardware from YC. Anna Heim from our European team picked Perea AI, which does debugging and monitoring for LLM application developments. There was lots of AI. I, I don't know, y'all. I just get excited about these things. Like I love seeing the little baby companies, you know, talking about how they've grown 50% week over week. I love it. I love how much you love it, Alex. That's what that's what I think I love. It's just seeing you get so excited about it. It's just really cool. I have a question though about on the investor side, we saw fewer startups this year, but that was on purpose. Were there fewer investors participating this year? So hard to say, probably not. One thing that investors love to do is complain about YC because it does have a history of helping accelerate successes. Uh, we all know the list of you know former YC companies, uh, like I think Dropbox, I think Coinbase, et cetera. Maybe it was Airbnb that I'm getting confused there. But anyways, a lot of companies you've heard of that have gone through. And so YC levers that and its companies get relatively strong valuations at the, an early stage. And that makes investors snippy. And so every year we hear investors complain about valuations at demo day, and then they still write a bunch of checks. So it's, it's hard to say, but... I, I think they're going to be fine. Kirsten? Well, we did have a story, right, that kind of talked to a few investors. And there was an interesting little stat here is that a handful of them, let's say seven, seven or eight of them, said they wouldn't be tuning in at all, partially due to the high valuations investors need to pay to get access. Thoughts? Yeah. Eh, I don't More complaining? It. Yeah. I mean, Marianne, am I being too cynical here? I don't think so. I think this is kind of typical. I feel like this year there's been a more controversy in general around this whole thing. I mean, and not to to change the subject, but isn't wasn't there also like a lot of chatter on on Twitter about some investors saying they'd already invested in the current cohort? So like, why even do a demo day if it's it kind of it's almost like a show? If a lot of I think it was a a quarter, according to Becca's story, a quarter of the investors she surveyed said they'd already invested in the current cohort, and I think. Gary there, Tan got a little upset. There's a lot of nuance around that and what qualifies an investment. Is it a closed round? Is it a single check? Is it a commitment? Um, I mean, the, the, the gist is that companies often 
do raise before demo day. Not all of them. Many of them are pitching to raise money or to attract attention for customers at demo day itself. So I wouldn't say demo day is archaic. And if Natasha was still here, she would tell us her spiel on on demo days (laughs) and if they are still good or not. But what what demo day from YC does give you is a very well produced, like like machine gun fire of... Mm very early stage companies. And to me, the nuance of exactly how much they've raised before versus not how mature they are versus how new, where they should be priced, what mechanism, all that's kind of like details. But Mm -hmm. I just love seeing hundreds of people from around the world that are trying to take new technologies or recently trod business models and apply them to different areas of the economy to help things go faster. Because that's kind of the theme, right? It's technology. It's trying to speed things up and make it more efficient. I don't think we're ever going to get away from the same YC conversations. Is YC still relevant? Are demo days still relevant? Why are valuations so high? I I mean, twice a year, right? Yeah, I have. I know we probably, again, need to move on. Just one other quick point, though. I was disappointed to see that 84% of the cohort uh, was based either in the U.S. or Canada. I was ah. expecting more international companies. So getting over my skis a little bit, I think when YC did have larger batches, they had an ability to l- have more folks from around the world. But mm. if I recall uh, Gary Tan's opening riff from the start of Demo Day Day 1, clearly discussing San Francisco in person, trying to bring back IRL Demo Day. And one thing that having a single geographic location does is it's a very limited uh, for who can be right, there. That makes sense. That makes I mean, sense. Okay. I didn't think about it from that perspective. Yeah. Probably there were more international companies when they were doing this virtually. Yeah. That was the one huge benefit of virtual, like all virtual mm-hmm. is that people from, and because I think that there's a real interest in international companies participating in YC, but getting there when you're a startup is an expensive endeavor, especially if it's not a guarantee that you're going to raise any money. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you get into YC, you will raise some capital from them, but if you want to raise more money to stay in the, I mean, let's be honest, still very expensive Bay area, it's going to be costly. I'll just say this. I thought it was a, a, a fine set of companies. A bunch caught my eye. I didn't even get to get through half of my favorites from the two days. So posts are up on TechCrunch if you want to read them and good luck, everybody. I hope it goes well and you make lots of money and tell us about it. So we'd love to know uh, how it's going. Now, to close this off, let's talk about the European Union, everyone's favorite regulatory body that apes as an international coalition. Kirsten, (laughs) uh, what's going on with the uh, Digital Markets Act? Thanks for ending it with such a light topic. I really appreciate that. Uh, So the story here is that they're cracking down on quote unquote, gatekeepers to foster competition. So the EU confirmed six mostly U.S. tech giants that will be subject to the Digital Markets Act. And really what they're doing is sort of applying a new set of pro-competition rules on these tech gatekeepers. What I hope maybe one of you two can answer is, you know, like, how do they define gatekeeper? Is it purely just these are the biggest companies that have monopolies. Um, Or is there some (laughs) other reason? Or there's some other factor in here because the gatekeepers named were Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, ByteDance, Meta, and Microsoft. So that's kind of what it seems like. Like these are all companies we've previously gone after (laughs) on -hmm. a regulatory front. So, So what makes a company a gatekeeper? Well, according to my understanding of the quote DMA, 
there's a certain kind of threshold where market power becomes large enough that they, these companies or their services in particular will fall under uh, the rules. And this includes more than 45 million active local users to the EU, turnover, aka revenue of more than seven and a half billion euro. So call it, I don't know, 8.2 billion USD. And then a market cap that's over 75 billion euro. So essentially, if you do become very, very large, if you do have very, very large reach, or if you're driving a lot of economic activity, they're going to want you to play play by these rules. Marianne, is that a fair summary? I think that is a fair summary. And honestly, I mean, these a lot of these companies do operate sort of monopolistically. Is that a word? Monopolistically? Yeah. yeah okay. So I, accept. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't necessarily see this as a bad thing. I was surprised to see that Samsung didn't make the list, though. It just seems odd that we would have these other tech giants on there, but not Samsung. Okay. There are some questions. In our coverage of this, we talked about things like Bing and iMessage that aren't currently uh, party to the DMA, but are under discussion for it. When I think about mm-hmm. Samsung, though, Marianne, actually, I'm kind of on the other side of this, because when I think about the services we're talking about, you know, Google search, YouTube for video, these are, are digital services. And when I think about Samsung, I think about smartphones and dishwashers and fridges and more, uh, more hardware, hardware and more right? Like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, so, I see that point. Yeah. So it's, like Samsung doesn't have an OS that competes at the same level as like Android, Windows, you know? Good point. So right now, virtually all the companies listed here are U.S. companies with the exception of ByteDance. Are you surprised that there aren't more Chinese companies on this list or do you expect that to happen in the future? The only reason why ByteDance is on this list is because it owns TikTok, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm. Th- what other... Chinese or based in China companies have digital services that are sufficiently popular in the EU market to hit that 45 million user threshold. In the US, we might think about clothing companies like Temu, Shine, et cetera. But in terms of apps in the EU from China that are popular, I don't have a a list that comes to mind. And if I don't, they're probably not big enough to meet the threshold, Kirsten. That's my guess. Yeah, there's some big ones, but they're big in China. They're not big in the EU, right? So Absolutely. And so, you know, when I think about this for startups, I, I bet people are asking, why do we care about regulation for the largest companies? What does this have to do with us? We're building a company. We only have 45 users in the EU. Shut up and stay on topic. <laughs> well, I think we're seeing several different global regulatory approaches. There's the US approach, which is Congress is purchased by corporate interests and therefore mostly businesses get what they want. There's the Mm -hmm. European Union method, which is Congress equivalent is purchased by activists and therefore they get what they want. And then there's the kind of Chinese model, which is the government's in charge, shut up. And I'm very curious to see how venture and startup results play out in the three different approaches to kind of like technology and business regulation. I think the US is certainly in the middle in terms of what mm-hmm. it's doing. The EU is on the cutting edge of regulation, you might say. And maybe that's the right way to go. But it does set up kind of a natural experiment for us for three major zones of economic activity in the technology sector. And that to me is just super interesting to watch as an economics dweeb and a fan of kind of watching um, international competition. But I guess, Alex, help me better tie this into like, what does it mean for startups though? Like- ah. I would say it comes down to like the structure of competition because, okay, so when I was on parental leave, I had some spare time 
because our nanny arrived early before I went back to work. And so I had like three or four weeks of like not having much to do. It was amazing. And so I wrote some stuff. And one thing that I wrote about on my personal blog, because I wasn't back at work yet, was startups should love strong antitrust regulation. Because in my view, if we do have at the national or national block level, the ability to say, no, you can't buy their company, you're too big, or no, you can't act anti-competitively and crush small companies, it's better for startups. Right. Gives them more of a chance, right, to succeed. But you'll often note that a lot of the people who are in favor of startups and venture capital are actually opposed to antitrust regulation because they want to build the next incumbents. So I think you have to decide if you want a rich area for startup development or if you want to allow, you know, leading tech companies to remain as big as they are forever. You can't have it all. You can't have it all. I don't think you can, Kirsten. Am I being too simplistic here? I wish I could have it all, but no, I, I, I actually, I, I want, I was thinking of like a devil's advocate, but we can have it all. No, you can't, you've got to make a, you've got to make a choice. So no, I think that that's a good point. I'm really curious to see if there are other companies that end up getting added to this that might be surprising. Like none of the companies on here surprise me. I'll be waiting to see if this is a, um, an ever evolving list or if this is just going to pretty much stay as is. Yeah. yeah. You too. think that the last thing, and I, I made a joke about Europe earlier, but just to be clear, no beef, but I will say it's going to be slightly embarrassing to be the EU and be looking at leading technology companies in your jurisdiction that meet the threshold for anti-competitive activities. And none of them are based in, in your region. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Oh my god! I was thinking about that. It's all us companies with the exception of ByteDance. So yeah, I guess we're just maybe waiting for that big EU social media company to to launch. I cannot imagine a market apart from China. I would rather not build a social <laughs> network than the EU. I'm pretty sure if you started to do that, like the, the, the EU commission would just kick your door down and just strangle you like, no. <laughs> and those emails go to Mary and Azevedo at techlunch.com. All right. Uh, that is the end of our time for today. So thankful you got that wrong, Alex. <laughs> yeah, actually, I do know your email address now that uh, I think about it and I will not share it. It's actually kirsten.corasek. Uh, <laughs> no, because if you share my email, then we'll be forced to share your phone number in which we'll encourage all PR people and founders to reach out. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's already happened. I've had the same phone number for so long. I, I'm still at like a thousand unread texts right now. So like, I don't think I'm ever nice. going to dig out. All right, we have to go away, but equity is back next week. And then the week after that, we are going to San Francisco. We are taking part in Disrupt. It's going to be an absolute blast. If you need more from us in the meantime, though, don't forget we are Equity Pod on Twitter, and threads. And we have two sister podcasts, including Found, which is all about founders and the founding story, and Chain Reaction, which is all things crypto interviews and crypto news. But because we have Kirsten, we have to give her a shout out for her very own podcast. Kirsten, drop it. The Atonicast, which can be found at theatonicast.com. Or we also put stuff on that place that once was called Twitter. The artist formerly known as. Yes. That's all the time we have for today, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.